Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout. I am your host, David Shuck. We are taking a little bit of a break from the history of denim today to do an interview with a friend of mine, Eric Kavatek. You might know Eric's work from when he shot me for our co-op 2 Quint Jaws cap, or you would probably more likely know him from his work shooting all of the Capital books for the last 20 years, basically everything about Capital. Uh, he has conceived, shot, and produced. But before Eric was a fashion photographer, he was also a very successful vintage dealer. And as someone that's just been into this stuff for longer than any of us, one of the things that Eric is passionate about is vintage Harley Davidson t-shirts and the history behind them. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm uh, Eric Kavatek. I'm a photographer. Uh, in general, I'm probably most well-known for shooting for Capital. Um, I've actually shot for them for 15 years, um, in anywhere from four to two shoots a year. So that's been, you know, kept me pretty busy for, for 15 years. And I've actually known Kiro Hirata, the designer, uh, when, when we used to do the 45 RPM uh, cat, cat, uh, catalogs. Um, that was back in around 2000, 2001, 2002. We used to do four, four books a year for that. So Kiro and I, you know, have a fairly, uh, lengthy history, but I also shoot for Holabar, which you guys featured recently, uh, which is actually a Colorado brand originally, which is kind of cool. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's basically what I do. <laughs> Yeah, and in shooting books, I guess if people aren't familiar with Capital, like when you say like lookbook these days, I think a lot of people get the sense of it's just like you got one model and you put the entire current season of clothing on yeah. them in front of a white background. And that's, uh, I think, sort of the opposite of what you do is like the Capital yeah. books are like several hundred pages thick printed, uh, like, you know, just as important parts of the collection as any of the clothing, I would think. Like yeah. that's in my opinion. Yeah, I I actually resist. Well, I definitely I don't call them lookbooks, and I even kind of resist calling them catalogs because it's not just you're not just flipping pages pages looking at item numbers and prices. It's kind of creating a uh, an experience and a uh, almost like documenting and documenting an, an adventure. So I I either yeah I call them I tend to call them books or. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what, I'm not even sure if that, yeah, it's hard to really, unless you've actually seen one, it's really hard to, to understand what's really in it. And it's, and it's, it's, you know, kind of telling a story um, based mm. on what the collection's about and where we are. Yeah, it's in a different location uh, for every single book with like some of the same models for every shoot, but then you do a lot of casting of uh, people on the street there too, right? Yeah, because there's so there's, it involves some some occasionally some professional models or people that we've used before, and then I mean definitely every time there's there's some people that are found at the location that I don't you know that I have to find once I get there, so I you know typically arrive at a location maybe i have a few people lined up 
to join us. But I'm, you know, from the time I hit the ground, I'm, you know, looking for local, you know, characters, like literally, literally from the time I land at the airport, I'm, I'm looking at the other passengers and, you know, looking at the taxi driver that might pick me up or, you know, trying to find, you know, who, who, who can I ask to, to, you know, be included, um, you know, so it's, it's kind of an, you know, pretty encompassing, uh, uh, shoot. It's not just like showing up and pushing a button. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty time consuming in general. Uh, when you say you're looking for people, like what exactly are you looking for? And like, how can you tell when someone just has it in them to be a, uh, a model, whether for a capital book or whatever? Having done the, the capital shoot that way for so long, I, I've kind of, honed my uh i guess you'd say street casting skills and you know in some ways i'm just as proud of my casting ability as i am the you know photo photographic skills i'm almost i'm almost more i'm almost more proud of my casting skills <laughs> which you know is a little bit weird to say but um I, you know i take it pretty seriously and it's yeah a lot of it's you know based on instinct um but then you know you're always kind of looking for characters like like uh, um, Avedon, uh the the American West photos, um, mm-hmm. or almost like mug shots. Uh, no offense to the people I cast for shooting, but um, and and you know like the guys you know really looking for guys that look like they've experienced something, um, you know, and in the course of that, without even realizing it initially like i ended up casting one of the very original navy seals as a model um in oregon uh he was where he was uh the captain of a boat and uh i just he just had a something about his face and then in in the course of talking it turned out he was uh on the uh, underwater demolition team in vietnam which became the navy seals um and you know definitely just by chance, a lot of vets, a lot of veterans have ended up being models for me, uh, for mm-hmm. us. And, uh, but you know, like, and then even younger guys, like, like, especially like in South Dakota, like even a kid that's like 20 years old, he's, his face will have like so much like wear and tear from the sun, just from being a cowboy, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah. it's, it's very, it's just, it's just sort of like a gut instinct. Because you're not looking for uh, like rail thin like 19 year olds like from no. uh, casting agencies. It's a lot of your models I've noticed are you know uh, totally all over the spectrum in age and like body type and uh, you know location. I guess is totally variant in where you are at the time. And like conversely, like just because somebody has like you know long hair or dreadlocks and like tattoos doesn't mean that. I'm going to think that they're, that they would fit, you know, it's not, so it's, it's not just like, Oh, they got to have like a bohemian kind of look. Um, you know, it really could be, you know, it's, it's just, it's just like a, yeah, it's like, you know, it when you see it, you know, but yeah, but you know, people, sometimes people are like, Oh, you should use this person as a model. They got dreadlocks. And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and then I, I really do care about their character like their actual personality too. So I will, I will compared to like maybe a other photographer when I have a, when I'm casting even real models, professional models, I, I actually, I talk to the people way longer than most people do because I want to kind of 
discern really what their character is and if they're going to fit, you know, if they're going to get along with everybody else and if they got the right vibe. And, you mm-hmm. know, even if somebody looks perfect, if they're, if I just don't, if I don't like their character, I just, I don't use them. And a lot of these people have never modeled before, right? Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. Is that but, kind of a hard sell sometimes? Yeah. You know, every, when you, when the first time, like you, so you walk up to like a Vietnam vet, you know, of course, the first thing he says is, oh, no, I can't do that. You know, I'm not doing that. And then, but if you talk to him long enough and you just sort of present it like, like, you know, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's a job and it's, you know, tell them a little bit about what you're doing. And once they realize that I'm not like some like fancy New York fashion person, I think they kind of relax, you know? Yeah. So you're just so, a normal New York fashion person. Yeah. I'm just a normal New York fashion person. But, uh, yeah. but you know, cause they, I think when you tell them, yeah, you, you tell somebody that that's never done it and maybe they work on a farm or they're, you know, drive a semi truck or, um, you know, it's so out of their normal, what they expect their day to be, <laughs> you know, but I think, yeah, I think if I have, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at getting people to kind of relax. Is that the way that you've, um, cast your books and your shoots, like pretty much from the start is like, I guess going back a little bit more into your background, like you didn't, uh, come into fashion photography immediately. Yes. So originally I was, I set out to be a, um, like a, you know, documentary photographer. I actually ended up my last year of college. I had the idea to be like a, you know, I hate to sound dramatic, but you know, to be like more like a, maybe like a war photographer even. So I, I, my last year of college, I took, uh, some political science classes, um, so that I could, you know, cause I, I wanted to understand, you know, various political situations in the world, thinking that it might be good for my, you know, if I could end up being that kind of photographer. Eventually, I had the means to, you know, do some traveling on my own. And so I, I just basically tried to train myself by going to like Indonesia or uh, Cambodia, like back in the 90s when it maybe wasn't quite as common and just walked around with a, you know, camera. And, and you know, part of that meant I'd walk up to people and, you know, talk to them and be like, well, can I take your photograph and or, you know, follow you around for half a day? And so I, I didn't know it, but I was teaching myself yeah kind of how to do what i do and, and and it was it was it was those photos that that interested 45 rpm so they they asked me well can you sh- you know shoot fashion but like like this like these these cuz i ended up i ended up being in jakarta just by chance during a uh, sort of an insurrection or a armed conflict um i think it was 1999 and the military was like driving around shooting people and i had actually just by chance i met a reporter from one of the main newspapers and he was kind of helping me out so i ended up uh kind of having these they weren't really war photos but they were they were like these kind of dramatic photos of you know stuff burning in the streets and so it was really smoky and 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 it, it was really like a ghost town um so, so it was, it was those photos that actually interested 45 RPM and, uh, and, uh, asked and did I, those published in the newspaper in Indonesia there? No, no. Um, it, you know, cause this was back when it was filmed. So by the time I got back to New York, 
Oh, nothing and, was developed. And then I had to point. develop them. And I, I actually, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have the money to really even, you know, properly print the photos at the time. So, um, yeah, it was by the time I ever got around to, to getting to the photos, it was kind of after the fact, you know. Mm-hmm. But 45 RPM saw the photos and asked me to shoot for them in that style. So then also for 45 RPM, we would, we would kind of do the same thing, you know, ask fishermen to be models. And, but, in, but in that case, it was like some white kid, you know, white American kid walking up to a Japanese fisherman and trying to, trying to ask in incredibly limited Japanese, you know, <laughs> like I learned. want to put learned, on some jeans? <laughs> yeah. I, I, like the first, some of the first Japanese I learned was, um, you know, I want to take your photo. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you say that? Uh, anata no shashin toritai daijoubu desu ka? And then, and then I learned, you know, how to say smile, don't, you know, make a serious face, don't move, you know, just, just really, just basically I learned my Japanese was limited to taking photos and, you know, drinking beer. If you were, I guess, globetrotting before that, how did you get to the point to, I guess, get your photos in front of 45 RPM? Has, as a obscure Japanese denim brand, uh, I imagine not a lot of people um, or photographers would have access yeah. or even be aware that such a company existed. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't aware that they existed. Um, so it was just, it was, you know, it was a combination of, of luck and, but then, but then, you know, building on that luck and and um so i i had no plan to be a fashion photographer and my the one of the first people i met in new york city she owned a a store that that the 45 rpm people ended up renting to uh open their new york store and it was one of those things like your mom says like oh you should you know you should do this or you should do that and you're like mom that's never gonna work but so so my friend was was like oh i I know these Japanese people that, that have a jeans brand, you should meet them. You know, you like jeans, right? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And, um, it was 45 RPM, which I'd never heard of. And they, like I said, I couldn't really afford to print, um, proper photos. So what I ended up showing them were laser copies of contact sheets (laughs) that Uh I made at the, like, just, just, you know, I went to the local photocopy place, but you know, I was shooting with a medium format camera. So the, the contact sheet photos were already, you know, fairly big and I could, I could take a photo, I could take a laser copy, which I don't even think laser copies exist anymore, but, um, I could make essentially make laser copies from the contact sheets. And so I showed them the photos and, um, they were, you know, good enough that it impressed them. And I don't think they were necessarily look. They weren't necessarily looking for an American photographer either, you know. So the whole thing just was like, just kind of worked, you know. And, and and I had no, you know, I had never been, you know, I had no plan to be a fashion photographer. I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know how to be a fashion photographer. And just by luck, my neighbor in in Hell's Kitchen was a real fashion photographer, and you know, he gave me like a three hour crash course and you know how to do it you know how to 
you know, just so that I wouldn't be, you know, when, just, just enough to know so that I wouldn't embarrass myself, like, you mm-hmm. know, take a Polaroid, show the client the Polaroid, then take the photo, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. how to, you know, he said, he said, okay, you know, he told me the equipment I needed, like I needed a reflector and I needed a tripod and I needed a, you know, the, the Polaroid back for the, for the medium format camera. And, um, you know, he taught me how to like, label the film each roll of film so that they were in order and you know just 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 stuff that uh, you know i had no way of knowing i'd never you know obviously i'd never assisted a fashion photographer so um you know i i I didn't know anything about it yeah that was lucky it's just all this stuff that people are uh, expect to do when they show up for a fashion shoot that um you, you have to i guess obey the rules a little bit before you know yeah as you said so you don't embarrass yourself yeah i mean and how to call a model agency and how to you know negotiate you know you just kind of you have to know the right words if you you know if you call them up and obviously don't know what you're talking about they're not going to send you any models um Mm -hmm. to look even to look at you know and and then but you know there it was there were you know there were awkward moments when the client was like uh you know 45 rpm there was a couple times where I obviously didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but you know, I, I I just figured it out. I just I just learned, I just you know learned by necessity in the moment. But you know, we we you know I think I shot for them for three years. So you know, by the end of the three years, I was a you know I guess you could say I was a competent fashion photographer. Yeah, I, I guess it worked. You know, they liked it enough to continue uh, doing yeah. it, and you know, it's well, been working for you for about twenty years now, huh? Yeah, well, you know, there's that saying like, you know, luck, luck, you know, luck only gets you so far. I mean, luck gets luck gets you in the door, but you know, it's it's what you do. You know, you know, after that lucky moment, it's it's what you do to you know. You can't you wouldn't if you didn't have the skills to to really do it. You wouldn't keep. Yeah, you wouldn't do it for twenty years. You know. Yeah. So and then and then you know then eventually yeah then eventually Kiro who I met at forty five RPM asked me to shoot for Capital and but you know but it, and 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 I've shot for a bunch of other brands too at this point so it's not just forty five RPM and Capital I mean I, I did a shoot for you know Ralph Lauren I did it you know did some stuff for Free People um, Replay Jeans was probably like the biggest shoot I ever did you know, when they were when they were you know thriving mm-hmm. um, so it's yeah it's kind of kind of worked out oh i guess continuing to work backwards uh in this interview yeah uh you mentioned that uh your friend said that you like jeans which uh i i guess it's hinting at uh you had a a life before photography in vintage picking yeah yeah so in the early 90s i lived in new mexico and uh there were all these, there were all, I mean, I, of course I wore jeans already, but there were all these local, little local shops that said, you know, we buy jeans. Um, and I was like, what are they doing? You know, you know cause everywhere, every, it was out like in Albuquerque, almost on every corner, there was a store that said, we buy uh, Levi's. And I, I was like, what, what, what are they doing? Like, what are they doing with all these Levi's? And I kind of, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd walk, I walked into one of the stores and was like, what are you guys doing? And they wouldn't even tell me, you know, they, they were like, well, buy your, they would buy my jeans if I wanted to sell my jeans, but they wouldn't tell me why or what they did with them. And like the jeans you were wearing, 
Um, just in general, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. they would buy, they just, it's just weird that a business won't tell you what they're doing, you know, like, yeah. like it's some big secret. And so that of course completely irritated me, but like intrigued me. And so I kind of, I guess I just, I guess I kind of figured out that they were selling the jeans to Japan and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to just go and find my, find the jeans myself, you know? Um, and so I just started, so after, you know, after work, I just, you know, I worked at a, co- I worked in a, in a coffee shop, um, you know, I didn't it, barely making any money, but I just started driving around to the thrift stores and, 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 and I would, I would look at, you know, compare the, the jeans and figure out like which ones were different and which ones seemed special or more rare. Um, cause you know, there was no internet and there was no guidebooks. So I just learned by comparing the details. And again, at first I just kind of wanted to wear them for myself. But of course, if I found something that didn't fit me, I'd just buy it. And then I, and then I kind of realized that I, I went to LA and somebody tried to buy a leather jacket I was wearing. Um, I bought it at a, at a police uniform supply store. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, it was a, it was a, like a old stock, uh, horse side police motorcycle jacket that, you know, I just paid what their normal store price was, mm. but it, so I went to LA and somebody offered me a thousand dollars for, for this jacket that I just bought for like, I think I paid $160, you know? And I was like, yeah. but I didn't, you know, I didn't the wheel stop. started spinning. Yeah. The wheel started spinning. And then I went into this, there, there was this store called Wasteland and like anybody could just walk in off the street and sell them like clothing. And I, you know, I found that just by chance, just by walking down like Melrose um, Avenue. And um, I saw, I saw that what, you know, how it functioned. So I went back to New Mexico and, and spent a couple months thrift shopping and then I I went back to LA and sold Wasteland, you know, what I'd found. And I just, I did that, like, maybe I did that six times. And like, every time I went, I like earned almost double what I had the previous time. So it just sort of exponentially snowballed. Um, And around like the end of 1993, I went to visit my family in Ohio and I went to the thrift stores there and it just sort of blew my mind, like how much vintage clothing was in these thrift stores. And, and, you know, you're talking like t-shirts for 40 cents, sweatshirts for 60 cents, jeans for a dollar 20, you know, and, and, and you could, I, Cleveland was a big enough city that I could drive around the entire day and hit each thrift store two times, you know, like once in the morning and once in the evening and every time fill up a shopping cart. And, and, uh, so I was, you know, unemployed at that point, I was actually working as a security guard in the back of a truck. Um, so that when, when this, these trucks would deliver cigarettes to like kind of the bad part of town and they needed somebody just to stand in the back of the truck and keep it from getting robbed when, when the driver was delivering the cigarettes to these stores, these like local mom and pop delis. So that job sucked, you know? And, uh, I realized I could be a vintage clothing dealer. Um, so I became, you know, 19, yeah. So like in 90, 1993, I was a, a vintage clothing dealer and mm-hmm. eventually I met 
Japanese dealers that were shopping there who had gone there. You know, they went from Japan specifically to the Midwest just to shop. And eventually they became my customers. And then the business really kind of took off. Once, once I had, you know, once I was selling directly to stores in Japan, it, it became like a huge business. Like, like I actually don't like the word picking because picking sounds kind of like, um, you know, you're, you, you know, you're finding a few pieces here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this was like a huge, actually like a huge business. And, uh, I, I you know, it, it was almost like in a movie, like a, like a movie with a drug dealer, except instead of dealing drugs, I was, you know, dealing in jeans, but, um, I fit, I fit the profile of a drug dealer. So I actually got stopped by the DEA, um, once shipping lots of stuff out of the country, dealing primarily in cash. Uh, yeah, I fit, I fit the profile because it was the war on drugs and I fit the profile of a drug dealer. <laughs> and, you know, I had long hair and tattoos and I had a brand new truck and, and I used to get stopped by county sheriffs and uh, I used to get stopped by uh, highway patrol. And, 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 uh, one, and then this one specific time, these undercover DEA agents, um, had me on a list when I was flying from I was flying from Cleveland to New York, and they they stopped they stopped me in the airport, um, and I, I I made it on their list because I for some weird reason I bought my airplane ticket with cash. No, and that they was, don't like that. Yeah, that was like a that was like something the drug dealers would do. So there was no trace, you know, no uh, credit card statement, I guess. And um, mm-hmm. so whatever, so that air airline employee put you know clicked clicked the box next to my name that i should be you know investigated um but you know obviously i wasn't a drug dealer so i didn't go to jail or anything yeah it was just the dea has a hard time imagining that uh, you could make that much money off of jeans and use jeans for that matter yeah and i looked i looked younger than i was also which didn't help and um yeah but I, I actually, some of the police that stopped me, they actually had encountered other vintage clothing dealers. So some of them knew once some of them knew what I was doing. Once they stopped me, they were like, "Oh, you're a, oh you're you're a jeans dealer. Okay, you you can you know carry on." Because vintage clothing is such an easy way, it, it's such a cash business. Eventually, I would encounter like these other Americans that were you know dealing in vintage clothing and. A lot of them were kind of sketchy characters because it was, you know, a lot of them had criminal records and had been to jail and they didn't, or they were wanted by the IRS. So by being vintage clothing dealers, they could earn, you know, cash money and not, not, not get in trouble, you know, and, and they would, mm-hmm. they would have like, you know, they would have like AR-15s hidden in their, you know, trailer and, uh, they were like these, these soup, they weren't even into vintage clothing. They just, they just somehow figured out that they could make money doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was, if the DA had stopped them, they would have, they would have had a problem. But the good thing, the good thing about vintage clothing is that, you know, I, I learned about jeans and I learned about fashion or a certain kind of fashion. You know, I learned about, you know, you know, men's workwear and, you know, motorcycle clothing and, um, and I learned, and I and I made enough money to actually buy like decent cameras. So the the, the great thing about, like, I wouldn't be where I am right now if I hadn't done that. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's kind of the great thing about that. And 
and it's a it's a chain of events you could never imagine or plan for you know you know being a from you know from being a a, a vintage jeans dealer to you know becoming a fashion photographer and living in new york city uh, i don't I, I could have never imagined that and it's sort of the same for me i had no idea that i would be writing about jeans uh full time for i guess it's been going on six years now but it's, yeah yeah it, that's sort of everyone that you meet in this business falls into it that they had no expectation of you know they as soon as they got out of school they're like oh i'm gonna go do jeans things yeah um, it just sort of grabs people when you go to college to be an engineer, you pretty much know you're going to work as an engineer or, you know, or a doctor or, a, you know, if you get a law degree, you're going to be a lawyer. But um, maybe because I got a degree in drawing that's useless, um, <laughs> I wasn't so locked into, you know, my career path. Yeah, I got a degree in medieval European history. That's very handy <laughs> for being a knight. Yeah, super handy. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to know how to like build a thermometer in the year 1650, I can help you out. But uh, yeah. otherwise, yeah, it's just about telling stories of weird old stuff that not a lot of other people are interested in. Or I yeah. guess luckily enough people are interested in to uh, be able to do it. We're taking the long way around here. Uh, but just one last question before we get to what we actually got on this uh, conversation to talk about. Yeah. Like, how did it transition from you being a vintage dealer that's you know, making a bunch of money uh, selling clothes to Japan to your is globetrotting, like ending up on the streets of Jakarta during an insurrection? When I sort of accidentally became a, a vintage clothing dealer, um, that actually you know, to my surprise ended up being, you know, pretty lucrative. And I mean, to this day, I've never made as much money as I did at that time. Like I, you know, I peaked at, basically I peaked at 27. Like when I was 27, I made the most money I've ever made in my life. And I've never made that much since then, even as a photographer. So I kind of peaked and I was pretty happy. I was pretty happy with that, you know, that job because it, it allowed me to drive around the country and you know, I could wake up and be like, oh, let's drive to Texas, you know, and, and just take off, you know, and, um, and I had, you know, I had my fancy truck. And so that was pretty great. And then in 1997, I believe it was, I was driving, I was driving in San Francisco, listening to the news and the, the newscaster said, oh, you know, today in the stock market, the uh, Japanese stock market crashed. And I was like, uh, I was like, oh shit, I'm unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, I mean, the 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 they stopped buying. You know, they they my customers stopped buying vintage clothing, and you know, one of them one of them owed me sixty thousand dollars, and um, it took him to his credit. He eventually paid me back, but it it took three or four years. Um. So, so in 1997, I stopped being a vintage clothing dealer and I really had, I really had no idea like what I was going to do. I, was, I, I, I have no, you know, I, like I said, I'd, I'd been a security guard and I worked in Alaska in the fishing industry and I worked construction, but I didn't really want to do any of those jobs, you know, and, um, kind of once again, just by luck or by fate, my, my friend in New York was like, he he had a pretty pretty cool loft apartment and in Hell's Kitchen, and he broke up with his girlfriend. And he was like, "Eric, um, 
you want to move to New York City and be my roommate? And I was like, uh, yeah, I guess so. You know, I had, I really had nothing to do. So I, I moved to New York City with whatever money I'd saved from vintage dealing. But, you know, like I said, I had bought, I, I had bought a couple decent cameras and I thought, well, this is, this would be a good time to maybe pursue this, you know, cause I had the idea back in college of, you know, being a, you know, a documentary photographer. So that was the only thing I could think of to, you know, try to do. Um, and I, and I just set out, just set out to do that, you know, basically. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, so once, once that, once I lost that job, you know, that basically my business in 1997, I just started, uh, you know, traveling and, and then eventually with, you know, moved to New York city. Things have sort of gone okay from there. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's not, it hasn't been, I mean, between, between yeah. 45 RPM and, and capital, I, I, I had to declare, I declared bankruptcy. Um, cause I had, a, I had a few years without clients and, uh, you know, spent all my money and lived off of credit cards. And, uh, so, you know, it, it's, I think people, I, I don't, maybe people think, oh, you know, Eric's got it easy, you know, but it, it definitely hasn't been easy, but it's, it's, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Attention blowout listeners, stop by the Heddle shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. The thing that we wanted to talk about was something that uh, we've wanted to get together on for several years now about uh, vintage Harley t-shirts, um, which is, I guess, a, a passion of your uh, collection and something that you know more about than most anyone else that I've met. So could you just give us a little bit of background on what vintage Harley t-shirts are and how your interest developed in them? Yeah. So when, when I was, you know, when, when I was, you know, being a vintage clothing dealer, obviously, I mean, there were, there were certain pieces that I just, you know, preferred and, 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 you know, just for myself and I would never, you know, sell them. And, um, you know, you can only have so many pairs of jeans. So, but, you know, t-shirts, some you know t-shirts are were you know generally were cheap they didn't take up a lot of space it was kind of an easy thing to kind of hang on to rather than sell and the the t-shirts that i really loved were were harley davidson t-shirts and um so um, um amazingly i managed to hang on to a lot of the ones i found so i mean i still have i still have ones that i bought you know probably like in 1994 um and they don't take a lot of space. They're kind of easy to store, you know. So it just—it mm -hmm. was sort of like the perfect thing to kind of hang on to over the years. And and because like a pair of five hundred ones is a pair of five hundred ones. I mean, there's not, you know, they're not that different um, from each other. Like even if you're comparing ones from the same era, they're you know some get worn in a little different, but it's not like there's a lot of variety. Um, whereas with with t-shirts, because they're printed on, they have the unique artwork. And maybe because I do have a background in drawing, I was definitely drawn to the designs. Um, 
and uh, kind of could appreciate the different the, the artwork. So, so like a like a printed T-shirt is actually it's like kind of unique in in vintage clothing that it's really it's not necessarily even so much about the garment itself. A lot of times, it's really about the artwork, and you know the right artwork can make a twenty dollar T-shirt you know be a five hundred dollar T-shirt you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I was I was always kind of drawn to that that aspect of them, you know, not the money, but just just the just the kind of insane artwork. And Harley T's in particular can get pretty insane with with the the graphics, um, mm. you know, because it's it's all like skulls and naked women and um, you know eagles attacking dragons and you know so it's so they're they were you know if something's if something was going to jump out at me it was definitely that um and and you know my family has a history of riding motorcycles also so i just it just sort of fit in with kind of my natural interests um and and harley uh they started producing t-shirts around the same time that like t-shirts became popular is Harley, they, they've been making bikes since the early 1900s, yeah. I believe. Yeah. But uh, the when did the T's pop up? Well, so if you, just to go back a little bit, so, you know, like originally what we call a T-shirt, you know, really originally was made to be underwear. And, we, you know, we used to call them undershirts. Like when I was a kid, we didn't say T-shirt. We said, we often said undershirt because that's what they mm-hmm. were. They were underwear. Um, and nobody would just walk around wearing a t-shirt, uh, back in like, you know, the early 1900s. So it, it really wasn't until in, in, so in 1913, the U S Navy, um, made plain white t-shirts, part of their, part of, part of their issued, uh, uniform. So, and they were made of cotton. Uh, like, like, you know, previous to that, like an undershirt would have been, you know, wool or some kind of blend. So, so in 1913, the U S Navy decided that white cotton t-shirt would be part of the uniform. So that's really when that's really the start of what we know as the t-shirt, um, Mm -hmm. at least in my opinion, but I, I think that's pretty much historically correct, but um, and was that used for something of like, you know, Navy guys that had to exist in really hot climates, you know, that they were out like on the deck of boats in uh, the hot sun or they were down in like boiler room shoveling coal? Yes. So what, so what just, I guess what kind of naturally happened, especially, especially as the U.S. Um, became involved in the Pacific more and more where it was very hot and humid, um, you'd have these, these and there's a lot of historical photographs that that show this, like with the you know the sailors either lounging around on the deck of the boat, all wearing their white t-shirts, or actually working and um, in their t-shirts. It wasn't really what they were supposed to do, but you know they would. That's that's what they ended up doing. Um, so then you know like in the 1920s, it became more pot, more common for t-shirts to be printed on. And a, and a lot of those would be like, you know, military units so that they knew what, you know, which unit was who and, and, and much more commonly sports teams really started to print on t-shirts, you know, the, the team name. Um, so like in the twenties and thirties, it was really sort of like very, spe- you know, specifically 
um, mostly sports and military. And then gradually you would find like souvenir t-shirts like in the you know 30s and 40s um like i went to the redwood forest or something yeah yeah or like the the empire state building or something like that yeah well especially if you were in the military and you were serving in you know guam or you know manila it would be you know you'd you'd possibly want to buy a t-shirt that you know showed where you'd been um, but really sports, I mean, sports, I think really kind of made it much more common for people to, uh, you know, have a t-shirt that, mm-hmm. that wasn't just underwear. They didn't um, want to advertise something on it. Uh, yeah. And, and they then, were a part of some team or they won some tournament or something like that. Well, so, so your normal, so most sports, you have a specific uniform when you're actually playing, but when you're practicing, you know, you don't necessarily want to wear the full uniform. So I think that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of, especially colleges, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd wear your, you'd have sort of like practice gear that much, which might be just shorts and a t-shirt, you know, and then mm-hmm. obviously for, you know, when you're doing your sport, you, you have the full uniform. Um, but so, but so like in 1942, there was a cover of life magazine with a, uh, a, a guy in the military in the war wearing a printed military t-shirt and it was the air corps gunnery school and that some people think was imagery that the public you know would have seen that would have influenced you know the the people back home oh you know printed t-shirts are kind of cool you know so that's sort of thought of as being um kind of a you know maybe a turning point i guess you'd say um, but then I think what, but then what really happened in the fifties, um, so you have like these three movies, um, streetcar named desire, the wild one and rebel without a cause. And in all three movies, the main character is wearing a, you know, a white t-shirt. And, um, I think, you know, looking back at these movies now, it's, it's hard to really realize the statement that was being made because, you know, for the main character in a movie um, to just be, you know, wearing jeans and a t-shirt, you know, back then you weren't allowed to wear jeans to school. Like my dad wasn't allowed to wear jeans to school. He wasn't allowed to wear jeans at all. Like um, even for fun, like he wasn't allowed to have jeans and, and that was not uncommon back then. So these, these movies show these characters that, you know, didn't give a shit you know like which is really what a rebel without a cause is basically saying he's a guy that doesn't give a shit you know yeah am i allowed to swear <laughs> oh yeah yeah for um, sure it, but yeah that's the thing of um the uh i think when a lot of americans came back in the 1950s that a lot of these guys that had just seen the horrors of world war ii were yeah. forced to reintegrate into society and were just like what the fuck is all this like <laughs> We're just supposed to come back and like uh, settle down and have kids and cook meals every night. Yeah, yeah. So that's you know that's really what the wild ones about. So these these vets from you know you're in, I mean you can imagine being in World War II and you're you know you're uh, as horrible as it might have been. There was also like a camaraderie and an excitement, you know, and you're you know hanging out in Paris and you're or you're you know hanging out in Japan after the war and uh, you know if you survived. And, uh, and then you go back to the state, you know, you go back home and it's like, there's no, 
you don't you're not walking around with a gun you're not cruising around in a jeep so yeah it it, it really transformed uh our our culture really so then you know the, the the common myth or reality is that you know these guys you know bought motorcycles and they formed motorcycle clubs and they uh you know cruised around in hot rods and you know and they were the guys wearing t-shirts and jeans and uh so so that those three movies really really i think influenced where we are today yeah and at least uh the wild one and rebel without a cause are both motorcycle movies yeah um, yeah the, the, do you think that had a lot to do with sort of solidifying the t-shirt as a motorcycle garment? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, you know, definitely, definitely kind of did, but just, and just, just the general rebelliousness of it. I mean, just imagine, imagine that, you know, wearing a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, imagine that that's like a rebellion, <laughs> you know, like to us, it's just so normal. Um, I mean, when I, when I was in high school in the eighties, my school had a rule you weren't allowed to wear a sleeveless t-shirt and you weren't allowed to wear jean jackets and so of course i went to school wearing a sleeveless t-shirt under a jean jacket and uh i actually got kicked out of school for that i forget if it was 11th grade maybe it was my senior year and so i almost like didn't finish high school because of that i i but you know i kind of talked my way back into you know, school the next semester, you know, promised to be a nice person and not wear a jean jacket. Um, Is that something you did specifically because it was, uh, yeah, I did it. I did it. Because, I did it. To, <laughs> I did it to show disdain for what I thought was a stupid rule in the 1980s, you know, Levi's jean jackets, because they have those side pockets, the oh, inside the ones. Yeah. Yeah. They have like the pocket you'd put your hand in there's a pocket bag on the inside that, you know, that is what your pocket, your hands actually going into, but that sort of forms a secret pocket and kids would, that's where kids would hide their cigarettes and drugs and cigarette lighters. So they, they made this anti jean jacket rule to kind of, <laughs> they, cause this was, you know, once again, this was the war on drugs. Um, yeah. So they thought they were, they thought that they were stopping kids from hiding their, you know, cigarettes. And I didn't even smoke. <laughs> I, I didn't even smoke. So I didn't even care. I didn't even care about the secret pocket in the Levi's jacket, but, um, but I got kicked out for it. And, uh, and I would, and the funny thing is I was a straight A student, you know, I was like, you know, I was like the kid that they should have wanted to keep in school, but, uh, well, at least I looked cool. Yeah. Um, so basically in the fifties you had this, you know, these 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 wild ones and rebels without causes and eventually my dad was able to, you know, buy a pair of jeans and uh, you know, be the guy he wanted to be. Um but so then, you know, so in the fifties then you did start to see Harley Davidson T shirts that were like officially licensed products you know are officially you know official harley davidson t-shirts but but the imagery was still sort of like trying to be like gentleman motorcycle rider like so it'd be it'd be like the graphics would be a guy riding a harley davidson but but you know back before you know before the 1950s when when men rode motorcycles 
Um, and I say men because it, it wasn't all that common for women. Um, but men would, you know, wear, they literally wear wool suits, you know, with a tie and a vest and a, and a blazer. Um, you know, they would wear like this proper attire, you know. So like when my mom, my mom rode a motorcycle in the 60s and that was considered, you know, she was considered, uh, I mean, beyond rebellious, you know, she was, you know, she said, mm -hmm. she said, she would actually, she actually rode her motorcycle when she was pregnant and she said women, you know, old ladies would pull up next to her at a red light and, and like yell at her, like, like chew her out. Starting to understand why you wore the jean jacket and the tank top to school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know so so these these movies in the 50s they really sort of transformed how you know guys and girls would you know start to dress and uh mm -hmm. so, what it meant to ride a motorcycle and what, yeah. what culture that you were associated with just by the act of, of owning one and being seen on one yeah so so in so the, so that you have these in the 1950s you have these actual Harley Davidson t-shirts, but like I said, it's more like this gentleman motorcycle rider. And, and, uh, and, it, and I think on the back, they might, they started, they actually started to have like the name of the dealership that sold the motorcycles. And, um, but then, you know, really then in the, like in the sixties and really in the seventies, you have what we think of as, you know, the classic Harley T, you know, with, with, the shield and the badge and the, um, you know, the dealership on the back and, and they're black, you know, these black t-shirts. And so you have, you know, so you have these like really classic, these really classic um, Harley Davidson t-shirts, which are, you know, like skulls and eagles. And, and for some reason they're obsessed with the number one, like, you know, we're number one, we're Harley. But, you know, back then still it would really be, you know, these t-shirts would really, really mostly probably been worn by people that rode Harleys or the, the at least, at least there'd be a Harley Davidson in the family. Um, it wasn't like people were seeking them out so much or, or, you know, people that weren't involved in motorcycles weren't necessarily going to wear them. Was Harley in charge of this culture? Did they still have a like handle on it? And is like Harley was nationwide yeah. by the fifties and sixties. And I'm wondering, like, are these T-shirts coming out of Milwaukee, um, or are they uh, designed by like little smaller Harley Davidson dealers or people associated with the brand that's sort of out of their their reach? Yeah. So you have two basic kinds of T-shirts. You have there are T-shirts that very specifically say, you know, officially licensed Harley Davidson product, and it has like a like a real specific logo. It's like the shield and um, and it, and it, and it next somewhere next to the design, it's going to say, uh, officially licensed product, but then you would have sort of these, yeah, like bootleg or unofficial Harley t-shirts, um, that like the local, like that shop might decide, oh, you know, we want to have, um, you know, the a skull with a marijuana leaf. So they would just, you know, they would get a local artist to to draw that and then and then that was their t-shirt so and they would print it locally and just sell it locally with yeah the harley they might davidson corporate knowing yeah that it might still be sold at a harley davidson dealership but it wasn't necessarily an official product 
so the back the backs of the t-shirts would still say you know uh you know southeast harley cleveland ohio but the front was the front image was definitely not an officially approved image but but some of the officially approved images are still pretty crazy so it's not like harley it's not like harley davidson was really freaking out if you know something wasn't you know to their standard Mm-hmm. if they had a standard because they were still profiting off the culture regardless of how like out there any t-shirt design was yeah i you know i don't i don't back then i don't know how much profit was really being made from from t-shirts but you know harley had official leather jackets and they had official boots so they 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 were taking it you know they they were taking the clothing aspect of it seriously even like mm-hmm. in the you know 40s uh, 50s, you know, so they, Harley all has pretty much always taken the clothing aspect of it seriously. Um, like I think today, clothing accounts for five percent of Harley Davidson's income or their profits, which mm. is you know pretty decent. You know, if you're talking, you're talking millions of dollars. Um, yeah, and also free marketing for them to have people walking around. Yeah, with Harley Davidson plastered all over their body. Yeah, and and that's really what T-shirts. Yeah, a lot of T-shirts really are sort of free free advertising. Um, you know, um, you're basically walking around promoting Harley or Nike or uh, you know whatever band you happen to think is cool. Um, it's um, essentially free advertising that, and and it's it's free for them, but you're actually paying. You know, by buying that, mm-hmm. you're actually paying to advertise for somebody um yeah you're buying into the club of whatever it is you put on your uh t-shirt yeah yeah but uh i wanted to ask like as a from a vintage collector standpoint which types of t-shirts are more desirable the officially sanctioned ones or the bootleg ones um i i don't think that that makes such a big difference but but the the unofficial t-shirts probably there's more variety and like slightly crazier imagery so probably you know for me i'd rather find some weird locally made one um that is like crazy (laughs) you know Uh um the, the the like super official ones tend to be kind of standard you know like an, like a like a logo or an eagle so yeah i mean i i probably prefer like the non-official ones but for maybe a certain kind of collector you know might really want some really you know cl- classic one but as you were saying it's sort of like outsider art you know that you yeah. could have an unofficial one that's like an art print where maybe you know there's only 200 of these things yeah um and it's that much more unique and strange uh and relevant to that specific point in time and place than what's something that would be a bit more middle of the road of an official one yeah and at this point i mean if somebody made 200 like if somebody like if 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 the harley shop in denver colorado made 200 of, of this you know weird harley shirt i mean how many you know back in the 70s how many of those shirts actually survived today so 
just in terms if like you know in terms of collecting something like that you know it's very possible that you know you could end up having the only one left that exists you know <laughs> yeah and some of them are in much different condition than others yeah uh, i know we've hung out a couple of times and you've worn some that are just like you know totally shredded for example i i got some harley t-shirts not that long ago and and uh the kid was like uh he he was selling he, he had a apparently he had a box of harley t-shirts he was selling and he said he said the only reason he had them is because his his friend's dad was using them as shop rags <laughs> and classic story yeah and these were like these were like incredible harley tees like like you know skulls and you know what I, I mean he had i think i don't even know how many i didn't get all of them i just i got some i got a fair amount of them but um he'd already sold some but you know basically they were in a box designated as as garbage um i mean i've actually found my dad's t-shirts in his garage that he was using as shop rags and i was like oh this shirt's cool and i i washed it and just you know have it <laughs> so yeah so quite it, literally the one's man's trash is another man's yeah, treasure yeah literally um you know, there's and and we both know people that literally do that. Go and you know find people's trash and make lots of money off of it. Getting back to, I guess, the more controversial designs, you uh, we've talked about in the past, and I've seen some examples of uh, explicitly racist, like anti-Japanese shirts. Yeah, that was sort of a whole subgenre of Harley tees. Um, which is like a confluence of all your interests. It seems coming together. Uh, in one garment of your time in vintage clothing and motorcycles and uh, a lot of your experience in Japan. Yeah. So what happened is, you know, so Harley, Harley Davidson um, in the United States um, in the 1950s, they lobbied for a tariff against um, foreign motorcycles. It was a 40% tax uh put on uh imported motorcycles of i think of a i think of a certain size like of, of a bigger bigger motorcycles the bigger engines so harley really had locked in sort of this dominance for big motorcycles in the united states and they didn't they really did not want competition in the early 80s so so several things happened in the 70s and, and, and in the 80s. So in the in the car market, you know, so in the 70s, um, American cars sucked and the Japanese started selling, you know, really started selling in quantities um, cars in the United States. And you had, steel, you know, you had a, American steel mills closing and you had the uh, American cars being threatened, you know, their profitability really tanking. And at the same time, Harley was was you know really starting to be threatened by you know Japanese motorcycles because and the Japanese motorcycles were you know they ran better they were more reliable. Um, so there was a lot of in the seventies and eighties there was a lot of uh, resentment towards. And Japanese this is even imports. when these Japanese imports are having to pay you know forty percent on top of whatever it costs to produce them. Yeah, but they were still like a, yeah. a deal in comparison wow. to what Harley was producing at the time. Yeah. So, 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 like my uncle, 
who you know worked at Ford Motor Company his entire life and was you know was nobody more blue collar than my uncle. Um, but you know, like where I lived in Cleveland, like you know, my neighbor worked at Ford. My other neighbor worked at Chevy. Um, my uncle worked at Ford. My dad uh, was an, an industrial salesman. Um, you know, we're t- my grandfather worked at a steel mill. So you know, we're talking like incredibly blue collar mm-hmm. area. And despite this, my uncle, when he first saw a, 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 a Honda CB750, he, he, he was so impressed he actually bought one. So it was kind of amazing that this blue, super blue collar guy would actually buy a Honda even. Yeah. But um, it was a way faster bike than anything Harley was producing at the time. You know, fast. So, so to get a little bit technical, um, and it's almost like sacrilege to say, but, you know, the, the V. The V twin engine, it's like a really poor design for an engine because it it just the way it it's made it it just you know it shakes and it it doesn't run smoothly. But so the Honda made this huge you know relatively huge engine at the time. Um, it was an inline four cylinder that went across the bike. So it just it just it you know some people have compared it compared it to like a you know, more like how a sewing machine you know sounds or runs. So you had this incre- like, the incredibly smooth engine that they handled great. They were fast. I, I actually, I've had, you know, maybe I've had six or seven Honda CB750s. It's an incredible motorcycle. Um, and Harley, you know, Harley stuck with this, you know, V-twin design. And they, because, you know, they've, they've put so much of their reputation into that design. It's, it's still the design that they essentially use today. Blowout. To really make clear how how severe the situation was, especially in like blue collar area of like Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So in 1982, there was a, a, a Chinese American guy, and um, he was actually killed by uh, Chrysler Auto Workers. Um, he, he was his name was Vincent Chin, and he was he was at it was actually at a strip club. Um, he was about to get married, and there was a a, a, a for like a manager or a foreman at Chrysler at the Chrysler Auto Plant, and a, a guy who had been laid off from Chrysler, and believing that Vincent Chin was Japanese, they got in a fight with him. Um, they ended up beating him in the head with a baseball bat. And he he died, kind of ironically, at Henry Ford Hospital. Um, mm. The the two guys that killed him were fined three thousand dollars and never went to prison <laughs> for the murder of Vincent Chin. And I, yeah, they were never charged with anything. I guess this is long before hate crime laws. Yeah, well, I think eventually they did get charged with some kind of hate crime, but it was only because the uh, family, you know pursued it for for you know many years um and i i remember when it happened and you know i i, I remember um you know being kind of you know horrified um amazingly at the time harley davidson ended up having these incredibly you know anti-japanese t-shirts um and there were you know there were uh 
car themed anti Japanese t shirts, but the t shirts often just said, you know, hungry, out of work, eat your foreign car. Like that was the, lo- that was the slogan. Um, and there were, you know, there were billboards that said this, and there were, you know, ads and magazines that said this. And that was mm-hmm. sort of the general sentiment. But, you know, Harley, you know, Harley being Harley kind of took it to like another level, you know? <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was almost like outlaw culture and, uh, rebelliousness and transgression. They were going to go the extra mile in yeah. voicing, uh, a lot of these, uh, uh, economic and racist fears. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like a real, so like one t-shirt in particular, it's, it's pretty simple, but it, it says, are you one of us or are you one of them? And the us is you know, has like the American flag kind of logo in it. And the them word has like the Japanese flag in it. And, you know, that's a pretty, you know, that's not particularly like violent or, or horrible. I mean, it's just, you know, they're essentially, I guess, trying to guilt trip the people. They're trying to make people feel guilty for having a Japanese motorcycle, you know? Um, like there's another fairly subdued one that's that says often imitated, never duplicated, and in the background there's a bunch of like Japanese writing. I you know it, it's it's kind of subtle, I guess, but mm-hmm. you know it gets the point across, and 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 like that's like that's an officially licensed T-shirt, so that would have been in an actual you know Harley Davidson you know dealership. Um, you know, a much more extreme example would be there. I have a T-shirt from uh, Rocky Mountain Harley Davidson in in Denver, Colorado, and the front. They're is, still here. Yeah, and and the the front is a giant atomic bomb explosion with the words Harley, you know, Harley Davidson written in the uh, mushroom cloud, and underneath it says, "From the people who brought you here, Ashima." Um, <sighs> You know, Jesus, so they're, that's bleak. <laughs> they're, they're basically, you know, incredibly proud of dropping the bombs on, uh, you know, Japan. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there's a wide range. There's, you know, th- like a real classic one is I'd rather push my Harley than ride a Honda, you know, like they're, they're bragging that their motorcycles are less reliable. Yeah, they break down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a fun note, or I guess not fun note, about the Rocky Mountain Harley Davidson. Uh, that location is actually right next to the former site of uh, Rocky Flats, uh, where they made all the plutonium cores for atomic bombs from like 1952 to 1989 before it was okay. shut down. Well, so I mean so, that might that might explain why they were so into the you know into the nukes into the nukes, um, but. You know, there, a lot of the t sh- a lot of a lot of these anti-Japan t-shirts are really, they're, they're, you know, a lot of them are like "Buy American, the job you save might be your own." You know, they're really, mm-hmm. they're really kind of in that. You know, they're not necessarily being racist. They're just, you know, they're 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 definitely, you know, anti-Japanese. But it's more about, you know, kind of guilt tripping. You know, mm-hmm. not to buy foreign products. Um, but, Were there any anti-Italian or German uh, sentiments in this? Because you know, like I, I imagine, 
Harley wasn't as threatened from Ducati or Moto Guzzi or BMW or like Triumph. It was squarely aimed at anti-Japanese. Yeah, strangely, it's really aimed at Japanese. And, you know, and, and, you know, what's funny is, you know, Harley, it's not, I don't know if it's funny, but, you know, Harley Davidson actually had an agreement with a manufacturer in Japan to manufacture Harley Davidson's in Japan in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm not sure how, up, up, up through 1950. So, I mean, it's not like Harley Davidson was, completely as a company anti-japan um but once they you know once this this situation in the, in the this recession in the you know 70s and 80s happened then it was you know suddenly you know but but so but the weird so the weird thing is another weird thing is bmw actually surpassed harley davidson as the world's largest motorcycle manufacturer I think, you know, back in the 40s, 30s or 40s. And, um, but yeah, there was, so there was never really like, you don't see like, you know, eat your BMW t-shirt. Anti-German stuff. Well, I guess the anti-German stuff was of a different flavor in the 30s and 40s. But, you know, there's like some really kind of, like there's even just, there's a t-shirt, kind of common t-shirt that is just uh, like an eagle fighting a dragon. And mm. that's obviously symbolic of, you know, United States versus Asia. So, you know, not all the t-shirts are like outright racist, but it's definitely like coded to, you know, you, if you, you kind of know what's going on, you know, you know, like one of the real classic anti-Japan Harley t-shirts, it's this like super muscular arm with this giant bicep with a harley davidson tattoo and in his fist he's holding three little japanese character guys you know one says yamaha one says kawasaki one says honda and he's the fist is like you know like the blood the, the veins are like popping out of the arm and the fist is squeezing these three little japanese cartoon characters and they're like they literally have like glasses and buck teeth and their you know tongues are sticking out and there he's like squeezing the life out of him, you know, and I, it, it's like the fantasy that like every, you know, like every guy that rides a Harley has this giant arm, you know? Yeah. And you can see, I guess how, uh, uh, imagery like that, um, provides cover for, uh, crimes like what happened to Vincent Chin of, you know, it's not too far away to see a cartoon depiction of violence against, you know, a racist caricature to someone acting it out in real life. And, and not to give Harley a pass on this at all, but you can see how the inspiration that they were taking for these shirts was directly from what was common practice issued by the U.S. government, like less than a generation before them. Yeah, I mean, you know, back in the South, I mean, I remember, like, I mean, nobody, nobody thought, like, oh, this is racist. I mean, it was just about protecting jobs and um, you know, like feeding your family. I mean, but in hindsight, yeah, it was, you know, very, you know, kind of insanely racist. And, um, I mean, you sort of touched on it, but, you know, so for me having, having worked with, you know, Japanese brands and having Japanese friends, 
you know, the t-shirts, um, I don't necessarily walk around wearing these t-shirts, you know, but, um, uh, what is the perception of Harley Davidson in Japan? Well, so strangely, you know, um, you know, Harley, I mean, Jap- you know, Japanese vintage, especially the Japanese vintage community, um, you know, they, I mean, they, they worship Harley Davidson. I mean, you know, Harley Davidson is like a God and, uh, um, you know, they, 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 you know, there was also at the same time that there was this, you know, vintage clothing market, there was also a huge, a huge, huge business buying Harley Davidson's and, and shipping them to Japan and, uh, and actually buying, buying vintage Japanese motorcycles and shipping them back to Japan. So, um, you know, when you're in Japan, you see incredible, you know, incredible, Harley Davidson's on the street and Indian motorcycle, you know, 1940s Indians on the street. And, and, you know, and a lot of, a lot of, uh, the, the, you know, Harley Davidson t-shirts are ending up in Japan. And I mean, I've, I've hung out with Japanese guys wearing anti-Japanese Harley Davidson t-shirts. So they're not necessarily like, um, horrified by them, you know? Yeah. But for me, you know, for me, I think having, worked with Japanese and having some of my best friends are Japanese. The t- you know, the t-shirts, I, I'm sort of fascinated with them, I guess, in kind of a historical context, you know? Um, and I, you know, I guess my motivation is eventually to make, maybe make like a book, like a semi-historical documentation of, of you know, this existed, you know? Um, and and you know not saying it's a good thing at all you know i was gonna say if somebody wanted to buy uh a vintage harley tees where would you uh point them right now yeah i i think instagram because like you know ebay ebay used to be kind of like the thing but it's it's kind of honestly i think it's it's a little bit dead like it's people you know it's you know somebody if somebody lists something on ebay now it sits around for a week or 10 days and you, you know, you're, you're looking at it, you know, you have 10 days to plan on buying it. You also have 10 days to get tired of it and not buy it. Whereas, you know, Instagram dealers, they can, they can, you know, they, 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 they put a photo of something and it's, you have minutes to buy it before somebody else buys it. So it's very impulsive and, you don't have time to get bored with it. Like if you want it, you have to commit to it pretty much instantly, you know? And there's no eBay commission. There's no commission. It's all, you know, so I think, and yeah, so I think right, right now, I mean, any, you know, whether it's sweat, you know, whatever it is, I mean, especially for younger people and, or people that have just adjusted to the new paradigm, you know, Instagram is probably, where it's at well if people want to uh go on the hunt and find things that you've done and see your photographs or uh anything else you're working on where can they find you so i have a fancy new website at uh you know my name kavatech.com um and i am on instagram of course and uh i am working on a currently working on a project induced by you know the pandemic uh lockdown uh, I've been try- I've been making a I guess my first magazine that sort of showcases 
my interests in photography and in you know vintage um, in magazine format, which is all you know essentially all my kind of my like what I what I would do without there being a client, you know, kind of my own personal vision. Thanks so much for coming on, Eric. This was a lot of fun, and uh, even though we've known each other for quite some time, I feel like I learned a lot. I appreciate you having me on here. It's uh, it's good to sort of it's good to kind of have you know an actual conversation with somebody. <laughs> <laughs>